introducing Mr. Kawada himself, my dad. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you're listening, however you're listening, this is Quantum of History. I am your host, Donnie Waldron. Welcome in. Today is going to be episode 28 from Russia with Love, a Putin story. <laughs> uh, this is going to be a really interesting topic. It has a lot of dynamics to it. The one part I'm going to start with that kind of got my catalyst to it is, is I've kind of taken um First of all, thank you everyone that reached out to me for the last episode. It really means a lot. I got, you know, really people that I respect, a lot of good people that I um, admire, you know, give me a phone call, talk to me, DM me about um, the last episode because I did kind of go into the weeds a little bit. And whenever you kind of put yourself out there and you're vulnerable for a second, you you do, you feel, you almost feel naked when you, when you create things and you put them out there because when you put them out there, you are giving yourself to some to, to everyone whoever listens it's a little piece of yourself you're a little bit of vulnerability so you're always open to yourself so um it really meant a lot everyone that that reached out to me and after listening i, I really appreciate it guys so thank you so much for that so the catalyst to this topic actually came from um, i haven't been taking a break from bond but i have been you know doing other things to keep my interest in and one of the things that I've really gotten into is uh, hockey. So I, I've been watching, I'm a diehard Penguins fan, and I've been watching most of the games, and I've been playing a lot with my son and stuff. So uh, this, this this story came out that Artemi Panarin, who is a um, Russian hockey player who plays for the New York Rangers, he had to leave the NHL, uh, had to leave his team and take a leave of absence because a story came out in 2011 about him knocking a woman out on an ice rink. And, and it kind of stemmed out as, like, well, that's kind of weird. I mean, yeah, I get that you would have to leave it, but the story got interesting because it's been vehemently denied. And even the NHL, the teams, it happened in 2011. There's no witnesses. There's no nothing. And who it came from is actually a, like a, a guy who's really trying to curry favor with Putin. And he basically, Artemi Panarin basically said he got the message that he needs to go take care of business with his family because there's a bullseye on his, his back now from Putin. And I thought that was such an interesting story. And I don't see it really being played out much anywhere other than in the hockey circles. I feel like this is would be a story that would be all over the news for a myriad of reasons. And then I figured, all right, it's time to dive into the weeds with this. And I really wanted to get into where the dynamics is, why Panarin felt so strongly about this that he had to leave. What were the dynamics? What came about? Why is he so terrified? And once I actually got into the weeds of the story, uh, what an interesting story! So I thought this is this is this is ripe for a quantum of history episode, and it really reflects back to if you read the book from Russia with Love, they do a better job. I mean, Fleming really lays out the the plot. They give a really good backstory to Red Grant, and they really do a good job of really setting the scene of what, what Kronstein and the chess places and, and all the, the strategy that goes into what he was trying to do because it was such a, an elaborate plan that he was trying to do. And I thought, my God, this is this, this Artemi Panarin is such a Kronstein from Russia with Love feel to it. Basically, you put in a fake story, promulgate it, tarnish his name, then, then destroy him from that side. You, you have to make the hero the villain, right? And Atari Panarin is one of the best hockey players in the game right now, in the world. And he's really excited to play for the Russian national team. And it doesn't look like that's going to happen now. So we're going to get into what he did, how it affects Putin, 
and all the poisonings, there's assassinations, there's poisonings, there's hockey players, there's stars, there's Putin, there's wrestling bears, there's riding horses, there's shirtlessness. There's all sorts of things with Vladimir Putin, and it's a lot of good things. We're going to have a really good episode today. We're also going to have a really cool guest, Ellie. Um, she is a Bond fan. She's even been to Secret Cinema, and she's also lived in, was born and raised in Russia and now lives in, in the UK. That's why I always want to hear from people who actually lived it or are first-hand knowledge of it rather than hear it from second-hand sources. So I'm very excited to actually talk to somebody who has lived it, has family in it, who has their finger on the pulse of what's going on. And that's why I always like talking to people like, you know, Thomas Felix Creighton, who's just lived everywhere. You know, he's the man for this. And and, and Ellie's great because, again, born and raised, she still has family in Russia, so she has the pulse on what's going on there. So it's going to be great to talk to her. So without further ado, let's get into the episode from Russia. We live a Putin story. To know that you are God is another way of saying that you feel completely with this universe. You feel profoundly rooted in it and connected with it. You feel, in other words, that the whole energy which expresses itself in the galaxies is intimate. It is not something to which you are a stranger, that in your seeing, your hearing, your talking, your thinking, your moving, you express that which it is which moves the sun and other stars. As our Tommy Pinarin sat in the locker room lacing up his skates, preparing to race out onto the ice of Madison Square Garden, he really had no idea what was about to hit him. Madison Square Garden had been his home for years now, had become a place of comfort and competition. Panarin was playing hockey in the world's most famous arena, while being one of the most dynamic and highest compensated players. Panarin had carved out a nice little life for himself. And what was supposed to be a day, a business day as usual, getting on the ice, losing to the Pittsburgh Penguins, quickly turned into something different. News broke that Panarin was facing allegations that in 2011, Panarin punched a woman unconscious in Latvia. The allegations came with no name of the woman, no witnesses, and nothing to substantiate this claim. I mean, false allegations are nothing new, and but they're never to be dismissed, of course, but they're always detrimental in some way. But this felt differently. This came in a different level. Nearly a month prior to this, Panarin came out in opposition of Russia's president, Vladimir Putin. Panarin was not only critical of Putin, but also supportive of one of Putin's greatest political adversaries, Alexei Navalny. These allegations and the message behind them so disturbed Panarin that he took a leave of absence from the team in order to get his family to safety. It is unclear when Panarin will return to the ice, but one thing is clear. Panarin is not taking any chances with Putin's records of dealing with the tractors. Vladimir Putin was born in Leningrad in 1952. His father was a war hero and ultimately a factory worker after the war. Putin grew up in a working class neighborhood with aspirations of more. He loved spy thrillers, and was always intrigued with the world of espionage. At the age of 17, Putin started his path to the KGB. The KGB told Putin that if he wished to join them to pursue a career in law, and he did just that. Putin graduated from Leningrad University and was hired by the KGB. He spent 17 years working for the KGB until in 1989 when the Soviet Union quickly fell. It had a lasting impact on Putin because he, he talked about how um, when all of a sudden the Soviet Union was no more. Putin was stationed in Germany at the time, and him and his colleagues were waiting for orders from Moscow as the wall fell. Moscow was eerily silent 
frozen, and letting the rubble fall all over them. It was a pivotal moment in Putin's life. It was definitely the recognition that the Soviet Union had fallen. They're waiting for direction from Moscow. Things are going into chaos, and Moscow basically just shuts up. And it was just like, um, hey, guys, <laughs> guys, we, what's going on here? And it just was silent, and it really affected him. Putin officially resigned from the KGB in 1991, and he began his political career working for former law professor Anatoly Sobotchka. I don't know. I'm really going to be horrible. The only thing I noticed how to say in Russian is Klasna Popka, which means nice ass. So but, uh, <laughs> that's all I got for Russian. So there you go. And I, I'm sure anyone who listens to this podcast is not surprised that that's the only thing I know. Leningrad was now called St. Petersburg and Sobchak was mayor. Putin was Sobchak's right-hand man, the man in the background doing the dirty work that needed to be done. And it was here that Putin first cut his teeth in the realm of politics. In 1996, Sobchak was not reelected as mayor. And although his successor offered Putin a job, he declined, choosing to stay loyal to Sobchak. Putin and his family relocated to Moscow, where he once again made friends in high places. Within two years of being in Moscow, Putin found himself head of the FSB, which was formerly the KGB. After being appointed by President Boris Yeltsin, Yeltsin ultimately appointed Putin to prime minister, the second highest position in Russia. So I really tried to dive into why he all of a sudden went from the mayor's right-hand man to so, I mean, Boris Yeltsin promoted him very quickly, head of FSB, then head of, you know, the prime minister. It's a very quick ascent, and and I don't understand why, and I, I couldn't find much reason, but it's going to kind of go forward when we look into Boris Yeltsin a little bit. I didn't look too much into Yeltsin, but in 1999, Yeltsin abruptly and surprisingly stepped down as president, leaving Putin in charge. Now, there are varied reports as to why Yeltsin stepped down. One is that the Chechenian war was an utter failure and it was driving down his approval ratings. But the other theory, and probably the one that makes more sense, is that Yeltsin was about to face high-scale corruption charges and he was simply getting ahead of it. Putin's first act was to pardon Yeltsin for corruption charges and, in addition, he gave him immunity from search warrants or any sort of investigations into him. It, it really sounds like Putin had him by the balls, right? And he had something over Yeltsin and tried to keep it up. He basically blackmailed him. This I don't know. I don't know. I don't have any reports, but I'm just going on what makes sense from a quick ascent to what happened afterwards. So he, he goes from the mayor, some mayor's right-hand man to all of a sudden the prime minister. I'm going to guess there's something else in there. And also the fact that in addition, once Yeltsin left, he gave him immunity, not only for past actions. He gave him immunity. You couldn't even write a search warrant on the guy. You couldn't write an arrest warrant on the guy. You couldn't do any investigations into Boris Yeltsin. So that is just a huge blanket immunity. And what a nice little, uh, what a nice get out of jail free card. So there had to be something nefarious, something else going on that I, I couldn't find. And if anybody else has more information on it, I would love for you to reach out to me. Because um, that little, those little three years period from 1996 to 1999, I'd love to know how, what actually went on there. As Putin took office, he had two crises in Russia. First was the ongoing Chechenian war, and the second was what to do with the Russian oligarchs. Putin was steadfast, strong, and unrelenting in the Chechenian war. This was especially true when Chechenian forces took hostages at a Moscow theater. Putin was ruthless in handling them, refusing to negotiate with them, even as 129 of the 912 hostages died. After the way that Putin handled this incident, his popularity soared. The second issue was that of the Russian oligarchs. 
Now, the oligarchs in reality have more power than Putin himself at the time. The few that owned and ran the vast amounts of wealth that was growing in the country needed to have a unifying voice. Now, the Russian oligarchs is, is just a group of really wealthy uh, business owners and, and inf- you know, not influencers, but people who have a whole lot of money. And there are some Russian billionaires that have a whole lot of money. And they kind of were running the country kind of like mafia style. And Putin basically gave them uh, a unifying voice, someone that they can get behind. So the way that Putin did it is he came to an accord with them, basically saying he would not interfere with their business dealings and their pursuit of wealth and world influence as long as they remained out of politics, which is kind of funny from a, from a, from a former communist country, basically saying, all right, you know, long viva la capitalism, right? <laughs> almost the almost a pure sense of capitalism that government's not going to do anything. You do your thing, we do ours. You get rich, I stay in power. You know, quid pro quo. Ah, oh, quid pro quo. This move was essential in the infant stages of Putin's power when his reign was still questionable. Putin was re-elected in 2004 to another term as president. Putin's power and popularity soared during this time. Putin branded himself as strong, outdoorsman. He wrestles bears. He hide, he just doesn't even need a shirt when he rides a horse. Ah, he's so he's so awesome and powerful. It's kind of like a he almost like he liked to watch Teddy Roosevelt ride a moose in the Amazon. <laughs> it's like you know this. It's kind of that's the way he wanted to put himself on. He's a strong, powerful alpha male. Again, he wrestles bears. Um, he you know, that that's his thing. And as the 2008 approached, Putin could not run again, so Dmitry Medvedev was elected. There was a, there was a term limit, so in 2008 he couldn't. Putin had to had was not allowed to run again. Medvedev promptly appointed Putin as his prime minister. Basically, even though he couldn't run, Putin still was prime minister, which is the second in command, and by all accounts, probably still was leading the uh, was still leading the country. Medvedev and Putin extended the term length of presidency to six years from four. So once they got an office, they're like, you know what, that four years isn't enough. Let's have six-year terms. And in 2012, when Putin was allowed to run again, he was elected as president, and he made Medvedev his prime minister. So Medvedev basically just held the mantle just to circumvent the rules for four years until Putin could get, get back into office. Putin has remained president since. And while his popularity remains high, it's questioned just how high it actually is amid countless accusations of corruption and election fraud. Putin's grasp on power has been mirrored in accusations of opposition killings, poisonings, and imprisonments. To have rolled over 20 years in a country like Russia requires a sense of ruthlessness. It certainly does have a mafia feel to it. In 2006, Alexander Litvinenko, who was a former KGB agent himself, died after drinking poison tea at a London hotel. Litvinenko was a Putin adversary and a powerful voice at the time. Now, also in 2006, Anna Politkovskaya was murdered on Putin's birthday. She had recently published um, an article about the corruption in the Russian army in Chechnya. And weeks after this, another defector was poisoned in London. And the poisoning seems to be a staple of, of Putin, and it, it's been a long tradition of the KGB, to, to poison their adversaries. In keeping with the theme of poisoning his enemies, Alexei Navalny, the person with whom uh, Artemy Panarin had outspoken supporter of, was, in, was himself poisoned with Novoshok. Now, Novoshok is a state-created chemical agent that is fatal. 
Navalny was lucky to have survived the poisoning, and he was brought back to Russia after his poisoning. Once in Russia, he was in prison for the opposition to Putin. Putin clearly hates Navalny, and Navalny constantly criticizes Putin, constantly talks about corruption. In looking at what has happened in Russia or when you oppose Putin in your high profile, it, it, while it seems like, okay, it's a fake news story published by somebody that you know, from 2011 that has no bearing, it means something to Panarin because you can see the track record of what happens to people who oppose Putin. It's a message. And there's there's very reports where the Putin had a, a had any kind of um, say himself in it, but it was it, it definitely the coach who said it, um, who made the allegations, is a staunch Putin supporter. He really wants to get high up into the government, and the way you do that is to curry favor with Putin. So whether it's straight from Putin or it's one of his supporters or, you know, who knows what it is, but it's it's clear that this is not something, it's not to be uh, not to be dismissive. And Putin himself is an enormous hockey fan. He started an elitist hockey league where he plays, along with other highly influential oligarchs. He started uh, a little hockey league in his mansions. And the Soviet Union and the NHL have always had political pains, um, with the Soviets unwilling to relinquish their players. In the 1980s, there was a number, eventually the Detroit Red Wings ended up taking almost half the, uh, the Soviet team. And if you're listening, go ahead and uh, shoot Luke Taggart a DM. From Bond's apartment, let him know the Red Wings suck. Garbage-ass team. I mean, what even is a Red Wing? Why do you have a wings on a tire? It doesn't even make any sense. It's stupid. It's stupid name. But in the 90s, the Detroit Red Wings dominated with the help of getting, were able to get all those Russian and Soviet players. But it certainly was not easy to get them over here. It was not easy. It was a political thing. They still had to, they was seen as um, their nationalist duty to play for the country. And... It was part of their, almost like their wartime. They actually were enlisted in the army as they did it. And it was not, if you watch um, the, the 30 for 30 on the Miracle on Ice that happened in my hometown of Lake Placid, not the, not the gator. God, every time I tell people I'm from Lake Placid, they always talk about that stupid movie with the gator. It drives me insane. We hosted the Olympics. We had the national, we had the Miracle on Ice. And all everybody wants to talk about is that stupid movie with Betty White with the, cre- with the, <laughs> with the damn crocodile. no. No, Lake Placid does not have the crocodiles. We had the miracle on ice, damn it. Anyways, that's uh, that's twenty years of traveling the country here and hearing that same thing over and over again. But yeah, so so it's it, the hockey for Soviets has long been a political issue, and it's also been a source of national pride for Russia. Stars like Alexander Ovechkin and Evgeny Malkin are charged of the state. Now. Ovechkin and Malkin are huge supporters for uh, Putin. You know, they've been outspoken. They've been seen with him. And it's very crucial for a hockey player, for Russian hockey players, especially in their families. If you are a national hero in hockey, many times your family, your when you leave hockey, you find a nice position in the um, Russian government or some kind of cushy place. Your family gets these jobs. You get taken care of as for being a national hero and also being pro-Putin. So when Panarin didn't fall in line and didn't stay the course of, of the state puppet, the repercussions came swiftly. Now, whether or not Panarin and his family end up facing violence or poisoning or anything bad happens to them is to remain to be seen. But it is, however, telling what the state of affairs in Russia are. Guy's going to leave a $10 million a year job because he's scared of himself. 
because if he's scared of the repercussions. And a lot a similar story happened to Enos Cantor, who's an NBA player, uh, a couple years ago when Turkey was was in there up up was in turmoil. Enis Cantor was very critical of the Turkish government, and when he won't he won't travel out of the United States anymore. His family was imprisoned. He is scared to death. When they asked him to go to London for one of the like um, the promote the NBA, he won't. He will not leave U.S. soil because he is terrified that if he leaves to London or goes back home, he can't go back to Turkey. He can't go see his family. He can't go see anything. He's a political. He's a quasi political prisoner. Um, because he spoke out on the thing, and that's the same thing that's happening to Panarin. So we take advantage. We take. We just. I don't even think we can imagine all what it would be like to live in a in a place where if you become a star and you go speak against the government, that your family is in jeopardy, that you are in jeopardy, that you could be poisoned, that your family could be imprisoned. And it's the reality for so many people. I just. I. I can't imagine living in a world like that. So uh, we're gonna talk about. We're gonna talk with. I'm gonna bring in my guest Ellie. Again, she is a um, big Bond fan. She's been to cinema. Well, I'll let her talk about that, Secret Cinema. We'll talk about her time in Russia and all the other cool things that, that she's got going on. So without further ado, let's bring in Ellie. Be a good baby, do what I want. Light of my life, fire my lungs. Give me them gold coins, give me them coins. And I'm off to the races, cases. Up a party chases, chasing me all over the All right, I want to welcome my friend Ellie. She runs a page called Completely Out of Order. She, uh, because really her page is completely out of order. If you follow her, she makes me look like Sesame Street with how PC with how PC she is compared to me. So, a really great treat, Ellie. Uh, go ahead and introduce yourself and welcome to the uh, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Donny. Um, well, what can I say? My name is Ellie. I live in London. Um, I'm a Russian girl living in London, and um, I work for the media company here, and that's about all I want to tell about myself at this stage. <laughs> yeah, we originally started talking because you were telling me about, you actually got to go, and I'm jealous, and deep, deep, deep in my soul jealous, that you got to go to the Secret Cinema, the Casino Royale. Can you tell a little bit about that experience? Yeah, it was amazing. Honestly, I'm I'm jealous of myself. Um, <laughs> when I think back, honestly, I went twice, and um, I regret that I didn't go more because they've um, uh, it's been the the biggest, uh, the bestseller, the biggest show to the day, and uh, they they kept extending the time. Um, that's how I got to go a second time. It's like anything secret cinema. Um, that they they just organize it so well. Um, you prepare in advance and you get the character or uh, a group of, of characters that you can dress as and, um, you know, create lies and your fake name as an agent and dress in a certain uh, color to belong to your team. Um, yes, is 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 very good. You just, you get to experience that whole world disconnecting from the normal life 
when you enter into that, they turn a massive warehouse into this movie scenes. And uh, it's just like in the movie, you get all these parts of like different countries where the, the bond and the whole um, the thing happening, you go through. You complete tasks and stuff. Uh, you play casino, real games, and drink cocktails. I'm just like <laughs> said, I'm deep, deeply pitted in my soul, jealous that you got to go not only once, you got to go twice. So I'm sure it was it was amazing the second time too. And uh, if they ever do open it back up, you're gonna have to you're gonna have to find a way to hook me up with some tickets because I, I need I need to experience this. I need this. I need this in my life. Definitely, I'm taking you with. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Oh, nice. I can't wait. So, what we brought you on here before is we're talking today about just um, mainly about Mr. Vladi- Vladimir Putin and what he's got going on with Artemi Panarin and some other things. And I always like to talk to people who actually lived in it because I can read about it and I can go to resources and I can try to figure out what it's like, but it's never quite the same as someone who's actually lived it and had their finger on the pulse of everything. So, can you just tell me what it was like growing up in Russia? Uh, well, for starters, I, I grew up in Soviet Union, so... Can you say that one um, more time? Because I just like the way that sounds. <laughs> I grew up in Soviet Union. Um, well, Putin wasn't in power then, so I did not grow up with him in power. Mm-hmm. Um, some some other people did, the younger generation, I guess. Um, from, from the point of when he came and took over he was seen as a positive figure always because things happen like things turned for better mm-hmm. when he came to power uh, i mean the country was in a complete chaos at that stage as you probably know and um yeah uh, we've lived through very difficult times especially the 90s the just very hard times um living in Russia. As a child, you don't experience it as much, but, you know, you know, your parents would tell you after, and you see a bit. Mm. Um, I always so, talk about that, yeah. too. Like, when, like, when I, I didn't realize when I grew up poor until I became an adult, and I look back yeah. on, and because you, you don't realize it, you're in it, you don't know any better. And then when you look yeah, back exactly. at it now, it's like, now when you look back, like, oh my God, like, wow. <laughs> yeah, we were poor. Yeah, yeah, we were very poor. But, um, but honestly, it was um, still a good childhood. That's why you don't mm-hmm. mind. You still get to experience. So, I mean, we didn't have all this uh, ridiculous technology that kids uh, need these days to be cool, right? Yeah. We were playing outside, so it was <laughs> fine to be poor those days. Thank God. Um, so, yeah, when he came uh, to power, he was seen as a positive figure for sure. And um, as the time goes go on, and um, as you know, there's been many problems with um, businesses, especially with the big ones, when we're talking about oligarchs and um, like Khodorkovsky, for example, um, you know, with all the oil money, and um, he always had this role of for the people not to get involved, like people with the big um, money. Mm-hmm. Obviously, money equals power in that sense, especially you know in Russia, uh, not to get involved and not to preach anything against the party let's say yeah i think that's the interesting thing um, is that it, it's kind of funny how you see that there's a time when it goes from yeltsin to putin and then it wasn't that long ago when it was communism and now it seems like it's free-flowing unadulterated capitalism whereas the the highest of the highest politics are separate from business and it's a free-for-all am i wrong in assuming that or is that kind of what the the vibe i've gotten from what's happened to russia is that like i said these russian oligarchs and these big business and this big oil 
um, kind of get mm-hmm. carte blanche? Well, you see, again, with Khodorkovsky and stuff, like when um, the defenders of Putin and what he's done to the guy would say, all these people who rise into the big money, they all came from the criminal background. Mm. And honestly, it's probably true. Because like I said, 90s were very rough, very rough. And people who survived or got higher in, you know, in a food chain and got some serious money or build that serious business, it was all about some kind of criminal activity, Mm. like in some sort. So you cannot pinpoint and said, you know, who's done it, because pretty much a biggest part of the country was doing that to survive. Mm-hmm. So, I um, think I hear that a lot know, of through through former Soviet um, things, and, and or even a lot of Eastern European countries that what, that fell after the '90s was that it was a free for all, and then it was yeah. just like a mad scramble to get to the top. And there was a lot of I don't know, did Russia have a lot of these pyramid schemes that happened in the '90s too? Because I know that I, I like in the Balkans there was a huge um, just pyramid scheme that took all the money away from people. I don't know if Russia yeah. had the same thing and the same kind of chaos that you guys had, had endured in there. Yeah, it was it was pretty similar. It was pretty similar, and um, yeah, so that was that was one of the things that you know the defenders of his regime would say, like, oh, you know, he's just putting criminals in place. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but it's it's irrelevant at that stage because people build. It doesn't matter how you know how they got there. They build money, and they um, the corruption is high anyway in the country. is is very corrupt. The whole system is corrupt. But um, the business was trying to get, this is the problem when the business is growing so big that it's expanding abroad and uh, people try to put their money in offshore accounts. And this is what he doesn't want and he doesn't like that. And then these same people, you know, create an opposition to him, start talking against him. Um, Khodorkovsky as well um, at... Why is that? Why are they, why don't they use just out of curiosity? Just why do you think they don't use the Russian banks? Why are they using offshore banks? Is it a tax holding? Is it unreliable? Is it not secure? Why why do you think it's, it's... the answer is simple? The currency is unreliable. Okay. Yeah, it's um, if you open bank accounts like I have a bank account in Russia, and uh, they give you such a high interest just on your money being there, not even like a savings account because the currency is so unstable. Mm-hmm. So, for example, here in London, when you have your, you know, in the UK, when you have your money in pounds, you get such a tiny little interest on what you've got saved against what you, you know, what you have in Russia. But the the currency is more stable. You would know that if you have, I don't know, 10 grand, that it's going to be 10 grand in whatever year's time in in Russia, it can just change. And that's what happened. (laughs) And people remember that too well. Mm -hmm. That's what happened. Denomination and just the money was nothing whatever you had you was you, you had nothing literally because the value of money just went mm-hmm. so you know um yeah it, that's why everybody tried to put money away uh the taxes aren't that high in russia actually compared to um well to here for example yeah. on your earnings and stuff but people still you know it's still um maybe we're talking 10 years uh, for some um, corporations, 15 years ago, when people start paying proper salary 
to the employees and getting it properly taxed. Like I've worked in Russia at a time that you was getting money, um, as they call, under the table, that you would be getting uh, such a small amount um, as on your pay slip or like, you know, through the proper channels and the rest you would get paid just under covers. And so you don't have to pay taxes. <laughs> that was just the usual practice. I mean, it sounds ridiculous yeah. now. Yeah, but it was just normal. Yeah. And so you find a lot of people who um, like go and immigrate in search for a better life, but you know, just go and work mm-hmm. any job, anywhere. They're still looking for that kind of system where you can get paid without being taxed. And stuff. <laughs> you mean I gotta just give half of it back? That's ridiculous, right? Honestly, yeah. You, you, people just get stuck in, yeah. in that mentality, and um, I mean, it's moving on, thank God. And they they were taking measures, and people realize um, that you know, if you want to get um, a mortgage, for example, to buy something, and you don't have money right away, you know, you would you would need to show that you're earning. But before that was just non-existent. Yeah. You just didn't have anything, any system like that. The whole credit system is quite new for Russia as well. Um, it just used to be you save, 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 and you buy. And that's why when anything starts happening, like some major crisis or um, some political thing, people in Russia just go and start buying stuff <laughs> so that the money is not going to devalue. Um, yeah, so you see, people live in such an unstable circumstance. And for example, even with coronavirus, when um, all the businesses or majority of businesses uh, were forced to, you know, to close like mm-hmm. anywhere else, restaurants and so on. Um, uh, I don't know what, what it was in America, like here in the UK, uh, government supported you to... Um, they would cover up to 80% of um, your employees' earnings. If you send no, we, we got a $1,600 check one time in the last year. We were promised other ones, but we don't get that stuff here. Mm. Oh, dear. Yeah. Oh, dear, Trump. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, I guess we can't complain here. So, uh, And that scheme is still going on. If you were uh, rolled onto that furlough scheme, you still remain, like, as an employee, you're not active. It's, I believe it's a military term anyway. Mm-hmm. And you get um, government covered uh, 80% and then from, I think from September, October, 60%. In in Russia, what they've done, uh, Putin made all business owners. So imagine you are a business owner, you have a restaurant and you have employees. Nobody can work because it's completely closed. Um, but you have to pay them money. But you have to pay them salary. Wow. That's what he. So instead of giving some um, money from the government to help to cover, he made business owners to cover. How? It's it's your business. It's it's up to you. Um, it's lucky that it didn't last long because Russia's actually done a very smart thing. They closed the borders um, quite early on, and uh, they didn't shut many facilities for long it was just a very brief time Mm because everything is open theaters everything i mean for for me living here in london everything has been shut forever i feel like so they just they just shut down really immigration but as far as domestic things basically everything was was stayed open everything i talked to my mom and she tells me like the new restaurant just opened next door they hardly made reservation there i'm like i i live on a different planet right now 
that's just you know different <laughs> but um yeah he's done that and that's just one of the things that you know it, it shows you how government doesn't really support business in there yeah uh, there are a lot of people who have a business like like successful business and they're growing bigger and especially if they have ties with some other international companies which let's be honest it's inevitable at some point mm -hmm. of course it's, it's a global it's a globalized world you can't survive just yeah. being isolationist yeah you don't they don't like it so what, what did you hear yeah. when like when when he first started coming up because a lot of times when you hear i know how it is in the states when you you can kind of see someone coming on the horizon to become president and I researched a lot to try to see what happened from 1996 to 1999, how Yeltsin fell in love with Putin. Do you remember that time? Or do you remember that time where you started hearing his name or think, oh, my God, this guy's going to be the next president one day? Do you remember that rise? Um, I mean, I was I was pretty young to be to have any sort of interest in politics. I'm going to be honest with mm -hmm. you. And um, I, I don't have much interest now. I mean, I know things mainly because of work and yeah. You want to do you go you go do fun stuff like secret cinema <laughs> and run a funny meme page. But nobody got time for that politics stuff. I, I do prefer to memes. Do don't too. find themselves, Ellie. <laughs> oh yeah, but um, he for many people you have to you have to understand he came out of nowhere. Yeah. Now we know, and when you when you look back. Um, you can see all the background, but especially because it was part of KJB, it wasn't something that you was shown to people. And um, in those days, you would have a few channels on the TV that would just control the narrative in the country. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, he was just, it was, uh, we have this thing when it's a new, new year's is a big celebration in, in Russia. It's bigger than Christmas. So that's our main celebration and uh, the president would always come on the tv and he would speak um you know encourage the country and so on and yeltsin came and just gave a word to putin and there he was uh, <laughs> so crazy because i i really yeah. i find that interesting too because i couldn't find anything from 1996 to 1999 how he how he just pops out of a bush and becomes prime minister and president yeah, it, it, honestly, it was kind of, it just happened. It just happened. And um, yeah, so he was there. But he, by then, Yeltsin was quite a joke. Nobody took him seriously anymore. Mm -hmm. So that change was seen as a positive change, like I said. Um, even though nobody knew this guy, and he looked quite small compared to Yeltsin, you know, in size. Oh and my everything. God, don't let Putin hear this. He'll be very upset. <laughs> this, this man wrestled better. Yeah, but but look at him. I mean, yeah. he can he can hold um, your attention when he speaks. Whatever you think about him, whether you like him, whether you hate him, you have to give it to him when he speaks. And especially all these international political conferences that you know they have, and he has it. You mm. know, yeah. he always knows what to say, and that just shows a very good. Um, school of KJB and all that practices because this is what you learn how to react fast and efficient in any sort of situation and it's very intellectual um, you know it you know all the threats 
and um, you know Russians always shown as villains in all the movies and any kind of news that come up and is always like Russians poison someone and is always Russia to blame right mm-hmm. they use it to their advantage like he uses it to his advantage he yeah. doesn't mind that he likes it it doesn't bother him yeah it's uh, it, it, it's as well it's seen as uh, oh well you know what <laughs> let them be scared they do have a reason. <laughs> you know, so, um, yeah, he, he uses that image of uh, being a villain to the outside world. And if he probably isn't out of all the rulers that we've had in, you know, in, in years, he is probably one of the better ones. We just, we just didn't have much luck. Yeah, you didn't have a good run there for a while. (laughs) (laughs) You had a couple clunkers in that day. Yeah, we we need another revolution. I think because (laughs) it's been too long. We like to have a good revolution. Yeah, I I I think Russian if you didn't. (laughs) (laughs) I know, right? (laughs) I always I always say the same thing. Like, there's almost a romanticism about Putin right now in even in the U.S. where he's so much different than what we have. Um, we've had, you know, except, with the exception of Trump, but before we've had a lot of soft leaders or people who are apologists. And I think the allure for Putin is that he just unapologetic. He is what he is. He does what he does. He owns a room and he walks in. He owns a room. Just like you said, it's, it's being in law enforcement for so many years, you have to walk into a room and own it. And yeah. he has that effect and he has that unapologeticism, whereas so many other, leader, other world leaders have become so soft. There's something romanticized about Putin himself. Well, yeah, he's definitely that type of figure, that um, strong, you know, he's not going to bend under any circumstance. And But that is what's scary mm-hmm. about that. Um, you see, all those tricks they've done to, to keep him, um, you know, in power, even when he stepped as a prime minister. I mean, that, that whole thing is a bit of a joke, right? Yeah. That they swap places and then back. It's like... The whole world was probably laughing, but, you know, you they, they're laughing, but it's not a good laughter because, I mean, I don't know. I, uh, yeah, anybody who's had power for 22 years, it has to be corrupting, both to yourself yeah. and everything else. It's got to affect your power. Or it's got to affect you, even your psyche about what you think you can get away with, just like yeah. how he's done these poisonings and all that stuff. You've, you've, you've owned a giant country now for 22 years. It's got to affect your psyche. And I, I say that... I kind of make the thing is that you make the good point too, is that you have to have a balance of both. You can't just have the uber masculine. I own everything be scared of me because that's when you get these horrible dictators that are, you're seeing it now in China. You're seeing it now you know, you still have it with North Korea and you see these all throughout history, but you also have to have maintain some sort of empathy and compassion. And it's hard to balance the both, especially when you've had power for 22 years, it's gotta be corrupting. Well, yeah, it's already been like said as a joke. Um, he's gonna be the next Lenin, you know. <laughs> you in power until you literally ready to go. Yeah. Go go. Um, it's the same thing happening in Belarus. Um, you know, it's it's a close call, and yeah, the Lukashenko has been in power for just too long. I mean, there's a whole generation now that grew up, and they don't know any other president. They're twenty something. And that's quite scary. And for them, they, like I've been there recently, and they, it looks like they're still living in Soviet Union times, in a way. 
Um, so, yeah, all those riots that's been happening, not even riots, people just coming to protest. But mm-hmm. it's been very rough um, how the, the police had to react or they've been told to police and the, well, what you have, like a SWAT, but they have their own version of that. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's been, it's been horrible. I've been following that story as well. And yeah. I've been praying and hoping, like, please, Putin, like, Russia, please don't get involved. Don't yeah. send any, you know, military there because we already have a bad reputation um, internationally as it is. So yeah, it's it doesn't help Ukraine all over again, right? Yeah. I mean, it doesn't help people like myself living abroad. You know, we're always thrown into this um, pit of fire, especially, you know, if you have somebody... Uh, like I've got British citizenship, so it's a little bit better. But if you have to extend your visas and stuff, all these kind of stories always make it hard. And sometimes people have to just pack up and go back home yeah. because they just uh, limit, um, you know, what you can get. And uh, like I, if talking about like um, choosing a, a Russian president, I, I don't vote. I don't feel like I have a right to vote. Hmm. Um, you know, England has been my home for over 10 years now and I'm not planning to go back. So, you know, um, I don't feel like I have a right to choose who is going to be ruling the country where I'm not living in. So I don't. That's great. Interesting stuff. Like It's it's always so good to hear from someone who's lived it, who has some kind of ties on it, who has a pulse on it. So I, I want to thank you so much for coming and sharing that about your Ellie. And on this podcast, I always do a different, uh, the hard questions, right? Now, these all open kind of softball questions, but I like to always have one really, one that you really got to think about, right? The hard questions, the, the deep impacting questions, the ones that inquiring minds want to know, all right? If you could be with anybody from the Bond movies franchise. Bond girl, Bond himself. You could be with Connery. You could be with Craig. You could be with any of the Bond girls. You could be with anybody you want. But in order to get with them, you have to be with, you have to ride a horse shirtless with Vladimir Putin. Who's worth being with Putin in order to get to? Well, Daniel Craig definitely is worth that. <laughs> Pretend, <laughs> well, I mean, you could probably still get Daniel Craig. His wife is all right. I feel like he could have done better. No, 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 no. He is my favorite. So I would do that. I would ride the horse. <laughs> then back as well. <laughs> if I could keep him for how long I'm keeping him for? You get only good twenty four hours. Don't get greedy. You get twenty four hours. That's not enough time. <laughs> but all right. How long do I have to ride the horse for? Um, you can just run for an afternoon for an hour. You gotta like go watch a sunset. You gotta go watch a sunset with Pluto. Okay, okay, I'm taking that deal. Yes. <laughs> okay. So you're gonna t- for Daniel Craig. You're gonna t- have an un- uh, an afternoon horse riding shirtless session with Vladimir Putin. All right, I can accept that. I can accept it. <laughs> Thank you so much, Elliot, for coming. If you haven't, or if you aren't following her on Instagram, it's completely out of order or out uh, out dot of dot order on IG. It's a yeah, really funny it's page. Weird. Don't follow because you're going to get shocked. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone's going to hear this this demure, thoughtful person. Then they're going to see those memes like, oh my God. <laughs> but it's a really it's funny probably page. Not me. It's probably not me there. We're just setting it up. So you never know. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much for coming on as always. Thank you so much. And I uh, look forward, like I said, if you haven't followed her page, follow her page. Um, and thank you again. Thanks for coming on, Ellie. Thank you.
thank you so much, Ellie, for coming on. That was really, uh, again, always interesting to talk to people. So thank you for taking time out of your day, for joining me, and to uh, to, to take your time out and help with this, uh, this little silly podcast I have going on. So thank you so much. And I think it kind of goes back to, I kind of struggle with this, not struggle, but I think about this all the time. When there is a romanticism almost in, in the United States with some people about Putin. They're like, oh, you know what? He's he's strong. He's an alpha male. He leads. That's the way it's supposed to be done. You're supposed to be strong, powerful, and be a leader. And of course you want that. You want your leaders to be strong. You don't want them to be soft for sure. I mean, you can't have someone that gets walked over just basically have a figurehead for a puppet for a you know, you have to have a strong leader. If you're going to be the leader, if you're going to speak on something, speak with authority, own the room, walk into a room, own the room, speak like you own it, speak like you know what you're talking about, and be confident, be strong, be bold, make the hard decisions. Don't worry about, you know, everyone that's going to be appeased. Don't be worried to make people mad because you're going to make people mad. That's just part of it. But you have to have that strong leadership. But you also, on the other hand, you want to have empathy. You want to have... Um, compassion. You don't want to have someone. It, you, you can't have it both. You can't have over, over. Um, you can't overdo it. And you still have to maintain compassion. You still have to maintain humility, and you still have to maintain empathy. And that's the balance that you kind of have to create. And it's one that's not easy. It's certainly not easy to do, to to do. So it there's never. I don't. People who pursue it, especially to get to the links that you have to get to, to rise to that level of the mountain, you have to have done things and have to have such a craving for power that once you get it, it's you're never going to use it for beneficent purposes, right? I mean, it's it's just counterproductive of what it is. You have to be this strong, driven um, person that's that that's, seeks it and desires it so much that you're willing to put yourself through criticism, scrutiny, investigations. Uh, you're gonna have to take bribes. You're gonna have to take all these things, and it's not just it's not just these um, Russia or anything like that. That goes in the and U.S. goes everywhere. You're going to have to get your hands dirty to get to the top. And so you get to the top, and, and it's the whole system of how do you get the best leaders? Well, that's probably not going to be the best leaders, right? I mean, that's not going to be the most beneficent person. You did it for yourself. You look at command in military. Or look at command in police. The people who get to the top of command are always the worst cops. Very rarely do you find someone who actually did a really good job and didn't play the political game and actually earned it. It's very rare. Those those guys are out there doing the job and they get dirty doing the job and they don't they're not in pursuit of the prestige. They're out there actually doing the work. So again it's it's hard. But my favorite my favorite story or favorite thing from history about how to actually become chief is from the Iroquois Indians. Now, the Iroquois Indians, I, I would never work, I understand, but I'm just going to explain how the Iroquois Indians would, would put their new chief. It would be that the uh, matriarch of the tribe would choose the next chief. It would be the eldest female, the matriarch, like I said, the eldest female in the tribe would choose who the next chief was. And if you were chosen by the matriarch, it didn't matter if you wanted it, it didn't matter if you thought you could do it, it didn't matter you were chosen, now you were chief. And I think that that's a really... In, you know, in a perfect world, you could do it, but in a small area or a small grouping, I think that's a really interesting thing that the matriarch picks the chief. It's it's you get both sides, you get 
Um, the the female still gets their representation. The male gets to lead because the chief at the time, it's more protector, more leading other men to go fight battles. It's not let's go fix you know political reform or anything like that. So it's a very interesting that you could just see the people who have, in the Iroquois Indians they, they they thought that you had to pick who the best leader was, and it doesn't necessarily mean the person that wants to be. If somebody really 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 wants to be chief. They probably weren't going to get it. It was going to be the person with the best leadership, the best that. And they were chosen, and that was their path. So that's probably my favorite story about how chiefs or elections were were done. Um, but I don't know how you do it today. It's it's hard to keep it. And there's a there's a poem that I would just want to read um, that I found prophetic. And it's one of those things where I could you know you could read it every sentence and dive into it because there's a lot to unbox here. But it really does kind of really in a short poem talk about what it would take to be a really 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 good leader and I'll leave it on that the poem is called If by Richard Clipping if you can keep your head when all about you are losing theirs and blaming it on you if you can trust yourself when all men doubt you but make allowance for their doubting too if you can wait and not be tired by waiting or being lied about don't deal in lies or being hatred, don't give way to hating, and yet don't look too good, nor talk too wise. If you can dream, and not make dreams your master, if you can think, and not make fates your aim, if you can meet with triumph and disaster, and treat those two impostors just the same, if you can bear to hear the truth you've spoken, twisted by knaves to make a trap for fools, or watch the things you gave your life to, broken, and stoop and build them up with worn-out tools. If you can make one heap of all your winnings and risk it all on one turn of pitch and toss, and lose and start again at your beginnings, and never breathe a word about your loss. If you can force your heart and nerve and sinew to serve you turn long after they are gone, and so hold on when there is nothing in you, except the will which says to them, hold on, if you can talk with crowds and keep your virtue, or walk with kings, nor lose the common touch. If neither foes nor loving friends can hurt you, if all men count with you, but none too much. If you can fill the unforgiving minute with 60 seconds worth of distance run. Yours is the earth and everything that's in it. And, which is more, you'll be a man, my son. I thought that was just a really good, I mean, it's called If by Rudyard Kipling, if you look it up, read it, and just kind of indoctrinate into yourself and just kind of unpackage everything that's in there. I really think it does a really good job of, of just talking about what the virtues that a good leader needs. So I'll leave it on that. Thank you again for coming in. This has been episode 28. This has been Quantum of History from Russia with love. A Putin story. Uh, thanks again guys thank you so much as in follow me on Instagram if you're not following me like subscribe all that other stuff subscribe alright guys thank you so much as always thank you for all the support thank you guys so much take care and as always stay positive out there guys <laughs>